Hello and welcome. The Portavud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World welcomes you to another episode of our podcast, Legacies of Ancient Persia. Join us as we further explore the many legacies of ancient Persia and its relevance to global patrimony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Legacies of Ancient Persia. This week, our guest is Dr. Kathleen Lynch, a professor of classical archaeology at the University of Cincinnati. In this episode, we discuss how she got into studying ancient Athenian pottery in Persian Anatolia, why the Persians didn't want ceramics but still adopted Greek artistic motifs, and how we can use technology in media and gaming to recreate accurate ancient Persian art. We hope you enjoy this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give our show a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. I'm so excited to talk to you again. Now, I do want to start us off and ask you, how did you get into studying the ancient world? Well, I was a biology major, an undergraduate biology major, and I was taking classes for my, at that time, we had to do a certain number of humanities. And so I was taking a class in archaeology, Greek archaeology, and I became fascinated with the idea that we just didn't know so so much. We just didn't know, you know, because in biology, it was like equations and formulas and facts. And I realize now higher level biology isn't all like that. But for the undergraduate, it certainly was. And I really liked the way that the uncertainty allowed my brain to work in the archaeology classes. And that appealed to me. So I took more. And by the time I finished, I hadn't taken uh, ancient Greek. So I graduated with a biology degree, but went on to do ancient Greek at the City University of New York, the CUNY Latin Greek Institute, and then applied to graduate schools in material culture because I was interested in how stuff operated in the ancient world, because I felt like that would get us closer to regular people. So that's how I got into pottery, too, because pottery really is at the the, the sort of baseline of individual use of objects. That's really cool. I feel like some sort of background in the sciences really lends well to especially archaeology. Mm-hmm. And it, it makes sense because I think in the brain it clicks that there's something tangible you like to be able to see and touch things. And unlike texts where you just sort of have to read it and imagine it, you can look at material culture and go, ah, yes, I can see it and I can touch it and I can move it and place it where I think it went. And it, and it lends so wonderfully to that. So I'm curious, ceramics and pottery, it's gorgeous, right? And so what aspect of Greek pottery really drew you most? Mm-hmm. Well, it went it went back to these questions about real people, because in a Greek archaeology class, I think all you ever see is figured wares, red figure and black figure. And I was curious, I wondered, were people using this every day on their table for everything? And the answer is no, of course, because we have plain black, just black glaze wares. And then we also have undecorated coarse wares or household wares, as we call them. And I felt like that was such a misrepresentation, the way that we are taught. We're taught Greek archaeology or classical civilization courses about this figured wear, which leaves out the majority of 
actual pottery that people used. So the things that do relate to their everyday lives are left out of that image of the ancient world. So I started asking questions about who is using these figured pots and and when and is this is this truly a whole set or is there just one decorated? So this is what led me to look at figured pottery. And at the time when I was in graduate school, it was mainly iconographic studies, studies of the images or uh, studies of the painter, the style of the painter. What was not being done was archaeological context, figured pottery from archaeological context. And only by looking at archaeological context, the assemblage or the entirety of the pottery uh, affiliated with a particular use location, only then can you say with confidence what portion of that is figured where. So that's what I wanted to know. And then so that drew me to Athens and to the excavations of the Athenian Agora, where I was very fortunate to be assigned to publish uh, the pottery from a house, from an ancient Greek, an ancient Athenian house that was damaged by the Persians in the second of the Persian Wars. So in 479 BC, the house was sacked. And I don't want to spoil it, but the Greeks win. And when the Athenians came back to their house, they had to tidy up. And the way that they tidied up was they threw their pottery down a well, the well, the household well. And, we, and I think that the Persians probably poisoned the well and so made the water unusable. Archaeologically, we recovered the contents of that well, which represented the cupboards of a household. And so that was how I was able to characterize the real role of figured wear in an everyday real Athenian, a real Greek household. Wow, that's a really, really cool progression. And it's, and it's really cool to see that you were able to work on something so cool, like, yeah, pretty, pretty soon after you started. Now, you know, going back just a little bit, was this a deliberate choice that you, did you kind of know what time period and location you wanted to do? Or was it mostly just luck of like, this is where the material was. So you decided, okay, no, I'm going to do this because it's, it's here. A little bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both. So the other part of what I kind of left out was the other part of my questions, the questions I had as a student was I started to realize that if you look in your Greek art textbook, Greek archaeology textbook, the figured pottery, the red figure and the black figure, almost all of it is from Italy. It is found in Italy. So I wanted to know what real Athenians were using. And if there was a difference between what was used in Athens and what was exported, it's because my hypothesis was that there was a production exclusively for the export market. But in order to prove that, you had to understand what was being used at Athens. So these were the two elements to my research, the idea of um, domestic versus export production. And then furthermore, on the domestic side, understanding what a real family would use. And so that was the what, what I was interested in. But it, I, the luck side of it, <laughs> the luck side of it was, and this is this is kind of a funny luck side. My degree is from University of Virginia, and when I got there, the professor I was supposed to work with, Malcolm Bell, had been awarded the prestigious position of Mellon Professor at the American Academy. So for the first few years of my time at Virginia, he was not there at all. But to my great fortune. The department hired temporary 
people to come in and teach courses in the Greek archaeology curriculum for graduate students. So I had both Tom Carpenter, who who was my very first semester of graduate school, open my eyes. He's the one who planted these seeds about figured painting, vase painting. And then later on, a young scholar called Gretchen Umholtz came and she she taught for a year for us. And she had been in Athens at the American School of Classical Studies as a graduate student, finished her dissertation, and then was on the job market, got this temporary job at Virginia. And she knew that the Agra excavations had recently found this well full of household pottery. And so she brokered a meeting with the director of the excavations, John Camp. And I was going to the American School the following year as a graduate student. So I was able to talk to John in person and Professor Camp did not really, at that point, the idea of looking at a context was just not something people were doing. And he, and he said, but we we already know all of the chronology. <laughs> we know the chronology of black figure and red figure. How is this going to add? And so I had to pitch to him the idea of looking at a discrete context to understand a house and then create this baseline of where I would compare what went abroad to what they were using locally. So that's so a little bit of little bit of good questions and a little bit of luck. You know, sometimes the best projects work out that way where yeah. you don't really have a great idea and, and it makes you more open, right, to mm -hmm. opportunities coming your way and then saying, yes, you know what, I wasn't planning on doing it, but I'll jump on it anyway. And then it leads you into something new and amazing and down a path you might yes. not have gone. So I love that for you. I love that Thank for <laughs> anyone who studies the ancient world who was like, you know what, mm -hmm. this has not been explored I hope someone does it and then here you come along and say, I'll do it. So I, I love that you were able to pitch it and that they liked your idea enough to let you run with it. That's wonderful. <laughs> and so, okay, because of the luck and everything, and then you ended up in Athens, right? And Athens in the ancient world was a big, big place. It was a big capital. I mean, it <laughs> traded all over kind of the ancient Mediterranean at this point. And so because it is a location that lended well to sort of trading with different ancient cultures. And so I'm I'm going to assume, right, that you knew that their pottery would then be exported and taken to different places mm -hmm. in the ancient world. So that could open up a lot of doors to different foreign locations where Athenian pottery ended up. So how did you go about making the decision to study the pottery going into the Persian Empire, into Turkey, which at the time was Anatolia. So yeah, how did you choose where you wanted to track the pottery going? I think, again, this is kind of luck and being in the right place at the right time, because my overall, as you rightly characterized, my overall research agenda was now that I understand what's happening in Athens, let's look what's going elsewhere. And I had every intention of going westward to Italy to to pick up this thread that was so obvious that there was something special happening with Italy. Well, right after I got my, my I finished my PhD, I was invited to go to the excavations of Troy and study their classical pottery, a portion of which is not much, not much is happening at Troy in the classical, classical period, but there is a little bit of imported pottery. And that was fortunate. I mean, this, this story is just incredible when I say it. That was important because University of Cincinnati was directing that excavation. So I actually worked for the University of Cincinnati Troy excavation 
before I got this position at University of Cincinnati. And in fact, I was here in this building, in, I'm in my office, I was in the Blagan Library at the University of Cincinnati. I was here in this building for a Troy conference, a working group, while the committee was meeting for the job the, that I have now. So the, the search committee was meeting while we we're in the, and early in the morning, while I was in the library, at the time, Brian Rose was chair of the department. He came down to me and he said, Kathleen, he, I don't know if you know Brian, but he's, he's very dramatic. And he said, Kathleen, only one of your references is in, and we're meeting this afternoon. You need to get your references in by two o'clock this afternoon. So uh, I called the two people and they faxed them in. This was in the day of faxing. So they faxed them in. So if I had not been in the building <laughs> and Brian had not been championing me, maybe he would not have prompted me to scare up those references. So, okay, Troy. So that starts my interest in the East. And the reason why there's so little happening at Troy in the classical period is the Persians. So as Xerxes comes across Anatolia, making his way towards Greece at Troy, he, first of all, he inscripts lots and lots of people, lots of men, and he takes their livestock. So not just at Troy, but in the Troad, in the, in that portion of what is now Turkey. And so this had a profound impact on the economy of the area. And this is why we get a kind of recession during the classical period. And then it starts to perk back up at Troy when the Athenians have a colony or a, a, a more like a political colony at Sigeon. And then it seems to be the Athenians who are the ones who start to take interest in Troy again, because they connect it with this historical myth, historical past. So that's how I got, that was my first foot in Turkey. And that was also my first opportunity working with Brian Rose. Brian Rose left Cincinnati, went to the University of Pennsylvania, where he became the director of the Gordian excavations. And in the meantime, I had a student who did a doctoral dissertation on Hellenistic pottery from Gordion. So I had been going to Gordion to help her as she finished up her dissertation, consult with her. And I met the most wonderful man, Keith DeVries. And Keith DeVries had been director in, of the excavation. He was no longer director, but his specialty was the Greek imported pottery. And regrettably, he became quite ill with liver cancer and he knew he was going to die. So he asked me if I would continue his work at Gordion. And the, the knowing Brian, um, having a great deep respect for Keith, this was not where I thought my career was going to go. But this is, again, one of those opportunities that presents itself. And you just say you, you can't say no to it for many reasons, professional, but also personal. So that's how I ended up at Gordion. And again, I'm still, as you said, I am following, I'm following the Attic pottery, the Athenian pottery around the Mediterranean. That's how I got there. That sounds like a wonderful opportunity. I mean, it's very sad that he was not able to continue. Yes, it was a tragedy. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, how fortuitous for you that you get to be pulled along on this great adventure with your pottery. I mean, that's right. Not many people get to follow their... <laughs> their corpus around right like you that's just right. kind of leave it and go and you know that's that so inscriptions don't move around so much <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> so, I mean, that's quite a pathway. Now, I am more interested to get into the Gordian stuff. So once you were there and figured, okay, well, this is now what I'm going to do. What have you found there? Like, give us a status update. So I didn't really know what I knew. I knew what I was getting into because while when those visits, when I went to visit my student, Shannon Stewart, who wrote it, the Hellenistic dissertation, um, I would often get distracted with Keith and we would go through the doors. And I, so I sort of knew what was there. But not until I took over the study did I realize just how astonishing, how amazing the assemblage of imported pottery was, because it is uh, highly and, and this is what led me to the bigger Achaemenid project, because it's, it had, you know, sort of run of the mill things that get exported from Athens, but then it had some pretty extraordinary and specific objects that are unusual and not that common. So that started me wondering, well, why? And and this is how I ended up doing the bigger project about Attic pottery in the Achaemenid world, because I wanted to understand how the Gordian pottery, how unusual or how typical it was for the period of time when the Achaemenids are in control of Anatolia. That's my, my first thought was Anatolia. My first focus was Anatolia. And this is kind of interesting because uh, there were two things that were interesting once I started looking at it. The first was that in every other circumstance, Athenian pottery exported to the Mediterranean East clings to the coast. It never goes farther than about 10 kilometers inland. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it's true. It just doesn't penetrate inland, except for Gordion. Gordion's 500 kilometers from any coast. And then the second thing was that I sort of had a, I, well, not sort of, I did have a really bad hypothesis or research question. And the embarrassing research question was, why on earth did the Achaemenids want Athenian pottery when they hated the Greeks? I, I, I couldn't understand why they would even want this. So those were the two questions that prompted the larger study. And I, I confirmed by looking around the Achaemenid-controlled Egypt through the Levant, up through Turkey. It's really true that the, the coasts are really vital, but the inland, they're really... And for Gordian, the other bad hypothesis I had was Gordian is on the royal, the Persian royal road. So I just assumed it comes over land by by this very elaborate and well-maintained road. But in fact, that's not true because Sardis, which is the satrapal capital at the end of the road, gets far less imported Greek pottery than Gordion does. So if you're assuming a kind of trickle down, you should have equal, if not less than at Gordion. And the opposite is true. There's much more. So I have proposed that the route that gets it to Gordion is not across the Persian Royal Road, but comes down through uh, Daskalion, the other satrapal capital in um, northwestern Anatolia, and probably through the Sea of Marmara and in a Greek colony called Kizikus. That's probably the route. And then there is a there is a very practical and functional overland route that takes advantage of a river running to the west that gets you to Gordion. So I, I also went through a period where I wondered if it was coming straight down from the Black Sea. But the mountains in the northern part of Turkey are 
east-west. So you would have to go up and down and up and down, which is an unrealistic way of transporting very fine ware, very fine pottery. So that's one part of it. <laughs> the other part was, why did the Achaemenids want this pottery? And I was not able to answer the question, did they know it was made in Athens? And that's, we start to have to unpack the term they. Who is they? And this is also where I went wrong because I was thinking about the Persians. And in fact, in Anatolia, the actual ethnic and indigenous uh, ethnic Persians were probably very few. What you have instead are indigenous cultures that get absorbed into the Persian Empire. And as Beth Dusenberry's recent book has shown, there was a, they were really hands off about local cultural traditions and went on in the same form as before the period of Persian control. So it was ridiculous for me to think of, you know, the Persian, the, the Medes as the ones consuming this pottery. It wasn't. And so what my study found is that at sites which had documentable pre-Persian consumption of Greek pottery, that continued, that continued. So at Gordion, we have good evidence that they were buying Greek pottery, both Corinthian and then Athenian pottery, well before the Persians came on the scene, and then they continued to buy it. So I think the they in that sentence is not the Medes, but rather the local people of Phrygian or Sardian or, or Lydian generally, they are the ones who have always used this pottery in their own cultural way. And so they continue to use it. So that is why we do not see an increase or suddenly new sites are bringing in Greek pottery. We don't see that. It's only these places that already had incorporated into their local traditions. Wow. Well, my first thought to that is, I don't think that your initial question was so dumb because <laughs> I also, having studied classics in undergrad, my first inclination would have been, well, they fought these wars. They clearly did not have much love for the Athenians. So why would you want their pottery? Like, it doesn't really make sense. But at the same time, just from having a general knowledge of what sort of happens in, in the years after, I do know that the Persian Empire was known for sort of being tolerant. And as long as you sort of submit, they'll let you keep on doing whatever you're doing. And then, of course, there's the crazy. I mean, it sounds a bit crazy to our ears, maybe. But the fact that their great opponent, right, was once Themistocles and... You know, when you, when you kind of assume, okay, you fight someone and you don't like them, they clearly crushed a lot of your, your armed forces and there's there's going to be not a lot of love mm -hmm. there. And then the fact that he sort of ends up in Persia, people go, what, what, why? We don't like you from what you did. So why are you ending up in the Persian court? So uh, I guess the conclusion I would take from that, right, is that even Greeks or Greek things eventually would, would find acceptance. And so kind of along that vein, when you did expand into the larger Persian project, did you find kind of a turn like Themistocles story where, okay, maybe eventually Greek pottery made its way into Persia proper, let's say, and not just on the, on the coast in Anatolia and like eventually the, they, nope, no, 
No, no, no. And I think the other thing that I got wrong, I'm happy to admit what I got wrong, is that we know that Achaemenid material or, or elite material culture was very luxurious in silver vessels. And in fact, there is no reason to I, I, this is again where I got wrong. I was wrong. The the really elite would not want pottery. They don't want pottery. They want fancy metal things. So yeah, some of the metal things start reflecting Greek designs and Greek shapes. But the pottery was beneath that level of society. It was so. So that's again, I say this like the people who had always been using it continue to use it. And in fact, there's that great quote from the Greek, the Greek historian Catesius is talking about Persepolis and Susa. And he has this great line where he says, whomever the great king is mad at, he takes his metal drinking cup away and makes him drink from ceramic, from clay. (laughs) Like this is a great punishment. (laughs) So, so this again, we have to divorce, you know, like the movers and shakers of the Achaemenid Empire from just the regular people. And I think at that level, yeah, there is some adoption of motifs and design, but not pottery. Pottery is just below them. That's quite sad to think about, especially when you think about <laughs> classical Greece and the beautiful ceramics that we have. Yeah, Right. And I think there is, you can definitely see some design elements that incorp- get incorporated into traditional Achaemenid style drinking vessels and garments and things that are clearly being influenced, but it's, they're appropriating them and using them in their own way. This importation of Attic pottery or Greek pottery is being used in a different way. It's being used at a different level for a different message. And I think that message has to do with maintaining traditions. And I even think there's a bit of um, sort of oppositional intention about it, that these families who, like, let's take Gordion, which was ruled by King Midas and the, the family, the royal family for um, almost a thousand years. And suddenly those Phrygian families are ha- no longer have power. Maybe they're using this tra- these traditions as a way of maintaining their identity as important and vital to the culture. Remember King Midas, uh, the Phrygian King Midas had a Greek wife. He had a Greek wife from Kume on the coast, one of these Greek colonies on the coast. And he was the first foreign um, king or potentate to dedicate at Delphi. So he dedicates an ivory throne at Delphi. And that becomes a tradition for the Achaemenids to make dedications at Delphi. So this, so again, I think there's two levels of things, the the real movers and shakers, the, the elite, the politically relevant, and then the rest of the people. And things are different between them. I want to say that's really sad and sucky, but also for just the ancient world, it makes sense that you have all these very separate strata of the population. So that's actually not really out of the norm. So it does make sense. I am curious. So you said we do see some motifs and ideas, maybe not the actual material, the ceramic itself, because, oh, I guess that was beneath them, but of the motifs and and other influences that did eventually make its way up and into sort of Persian consciousness. What would you say is like the most common one that transferred over? 
I think the the use of kind of um, palmettes and friezes, decorative friezes, because Persian art, Persian material culture, small scale material culture is not as narrative as their public art, their large scale public art. So these smaller scale things are more patterns and decorative patterns. And it's those decorative patterns that clearly borrow from patterns that you might see as the subsidiary decoration on a Greek pot become elements of um, a garment or on the the top of a metal vessel that's it's in gold and silver instead of being painted on like you'd see. And of course we see there are tombs, there are Kemenid period tombs in um, Turkey, in, in Anatolia that are done in the style, the artistic style of Greek painting. And there is also a small building at Gordion called the Painted House and it has large-scale frescoes of a procession of women, probably a religious procession, but the style of them also is Greek-inspired. So there, there is crossover. It's just the fact that it that the pottery is not accepted up to that level tells us something. It tells us something. It's not that they were immune to it. They just chose different modes to accept the material culture. Sure. And I want to make a clarification for all those who are not experts or even familiar with what typical Greek art would look like or, you you know, can vaguely pull up a picture. So when we say that the influence kind of passes from one to another, the ideas of using the palms and sort of the other decorative elements, are they exactly copied over in the exact same styles using the exact same material or are they different? They are different, but they there is um they're inspired by let's call it that they're not pure imitation they're inspired by and the artistic style some of the key characteristics of Greek art at this time are profile views figures human figures in the profile and with an outline and these are two features that we see in both tomb paintings and in this painted painted house that we have at Gordion and it it is you know there has been speculation that especially with the tomb paintings that there are Greek artists who are itinerant and do them I don't know I don't know I think you can certainly emulate a style whether you are you know you don't have to be Greek to emulate a Greek style but it does show that it was common enough that people that people knew it and wanted it to so the tomb owners, the commissioners, the people who are commissioning these things wanted something in that style. So it's and this is the um, Greco-Persian style, the Greco-Persian style. We have the carved sarcophagi from the area of the Troad again that have there's one famously of the sacrifice of Polyxena. And it's definitely not a Greek being buried there. So even the iconography and the themes are incorporated or borrowed, but they're they're made uniquely Persian. So the idea of a carved sarcophagus with this kind of narrative relief on it is not something a Greek would do, but it's in a Greek style. And the person who owned it obviously meant something by it through the their knowledge of that Greek myth which happened nearby because the sacrifice of Polyxena is at the tomb of Patroclus just down the road. <laughs> Interesting. So, and I'm glad you brought her up because she is a mythological figure. Now, I think for me, my next logical question in this whole wonderful sequence is now we've talked a lot about sort of the palms are sort of the more abstract decorative elements. We have 
obviously from Greece, we have a lot of depictions of, of figures, of people, depending on who is sort of borrowing the style and where they're putting it. Do we see a crossover in sort of the more mythological content? And and what I mean by that, like the example I have in my head, right, is the Greek Sphinx. Like, do we have mm. almost mythological elements that also carry over and are used? That's a great example because... Because in fact, the Sphinx originates in the East and comes over to the Greeks and the Greeks use it and then re-export it. And I think you could say the same of other kind of topics too, that um, the idea of the palmette frieze is something that originates in Egypt. The Greeks absorb it, they redefine it, and then they re-export it. So this is this really fluid cultural exchange that I think... We'd love it to be more black and white, but it, as as you said, in terms of the history, there's a lot of fluidity here that we, we, the scholars, the ones, the students of this period have to be more relaxed about it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's this, the Sphinx is good. Wait, I just had another one. Um, you said other things that we get from, from the, oh, the reclining, that's what it was. So the idea of reclining while dining and in in the East, it is definitely dining. And the Persians did this. They they reclined at banquets. Um, and it was a banquet, so emphasis on food and drink. But it was usually the king or the, the satrap, it was it was the most important person is reclining on a raised bed, raised kind of couch thing. Well, that gets imported or <laughs> into Greece where it becomes an element of the symposium, the ele an element of the symposium. But at the symposium, it's just drinking. It's not dining as much as it is. The, the, the wine is more important. And then it gets re-exported because we see in Achaemenid period tombs, we see reclining tomb owners, we assume it's the tomb owner. And it is in that context, it's borrowing, it's it's merging East and West. It's both power and knowledge of what's happening in Greece and Greek traditions. Is that man having a symposium? No, that the tomb owner is not having a symposium because a symposium is a Greek thing. Is he pretending to be the great king of Persia? No, he's somewhere in between where he's borrowing from both. Huh pretty cool okay that that is pretty cool also i guess i did not realize how much the greeks took from other people put their own spin on it and then sold it back to people yes <laughs> as their own i mean i suppose it makes sense that that would happen in the ancient world kind of the way that we see things like that happen today but yeah just out of curiosity did anyone call the greeks out on this like did, did anyone sort of notice this pattern and say hey that was ours <laughs> well, I mean, we can see it for the the temple architecture too. You know, they, they get the idea of stone architecture from Egypt, but they get the idea of the Koros statue from Egypt. So, no, once it goes through the Greek filter, it is really Greek. It has um, Greekness to it. That so the fact that, for example, the stone sculptures of standing male figures in Egypt are always with a skirt. They are always clothed. Their their genitals are clothed. The Greeks make them nude. So. Anytime, then when it gets re-exported with the nude figure, it's unmistakably Greek. So it sort of becomes this telephone game kind of thing. <laughs> Goodness me, the Greeks are all encompassing with just sort of taking everything over and saying, yep, ours. It's like a big old stamp on it, I guess. 
They and they make they adopt it and they make it uniquely theirs. So it's unmistakably Greek. You know, you wouldn't mistake a Greek temple for an Egyptian temple, for example. But the idea gets comes from Egypt. That kind. That's the the mode. I mean, and then you mentioned sphinxes. So I've noticed there's a lot of confusion when people outside of the fields think of sphinxes because I feel like you'll get either two answers. One is, oh, the sphinx comes from Egypt because we associate the sphinx in Egypt and we still have the big one in, in front of the pyramids and then other people would say oh, no isn't the sphinx a Greek thing because of the whole riddle where you ask it a riddle and I and from what I remember mm-hmm. there's no riddle associated with Egyptian sphinxes so to the east in Mesopotamia do you know what makes a sphinx unique there that's not the Greek one or the Egyptian one I don't know. They definitely have them in Mesopotamia. And how the concept of the Sphinx in Mesopotamia is different from Egypt, I don't know. That's outside my my expertise. But I think it's a great example of something that exists in these other cultures that the Greeks bring into their culture. And it's exotic and weird. And so it makes sense that it would be the source of this riddle that cause Thebes to collapse upon itself and and men to be thrown to their death because they can't solve the riddle. So, and it's a woman, it's a female sphinx, it's a female sphinx. So we associate these bad and exotic weird things with women, Amazons, for example. So it's not a surprise that, that the Greeks use the sphinx in this way as this exotic and intimidating creature. And when we see it, for example, there's the, the, the sphinx of the Naxians at Delphi, where they erect as a votive monument this on a big column, they put a sphinx. And we see sphinxes on grave markers in Athens. This is their almost an apotropaic element that it is protective and because of its oddity, its exoticness, its oddity, its mysteriousness, its strangeness as coming from something outside um, and as a foreign quality to it. Well, one, yes, that question was kind of a shot in the dark. I did not, don't, don't worry, I did not expect you to suddenly say, oh yes, and now let me tell you about the entire artistic history of sphinxes in Mesopotamia. That That is definitely a, a different expert who does maybe completely different time periods but it was you know it's interesting just because i i know sphinxes play such a big role in art and you do see them mm-hmm. all over the ancient mediterranean and and in the east as well so yeah i would i would be interested to to know more if there's anyone out there who knows more please let us know someone does i promise you <laughs> and this conversation also has me thinking you know it from what you've seen of greek artistic decor carrying over and then being adopted and stuff it, it makes me wonder you know I'm uh, how much of that is still around and being used today that's a very modern question for someone who studies these areas in, in modern times but it, it just it's a thought that that you know was in my brain so I want to move a little to the, the larger recommended project that you're doing because that sounds very interesting so you said it was Gordian started and then and then it morphed into the bigger project so Tell us a little bit about starting at Gordion and then being able to expand it. So I started with these questions that didn't, I didn't quite understand 
what I was after, but I wanted to know how Gordian related, how it compared to other sites in the Achaemenid period with the consumption, their use of Athenian pottery. So what I did was I sort of systematically went through sites. And what is really interesting is that there are two categories of consumers of imported Athenian pottery. And the one is the one I, as I described, these sites where they had a record of importing the pottery before they continue to use it and more or less in the same way as for the same, same purposes. And what, while I can't put that literally onto the ground, the fact that certain sites preferred certain shape, certain decoration, and it, that continues pre and post absorption into the Achaemenid empire. This tells me that they're maintaining I can't tell you exactly how they're using them culturally, like like they're using them in this ritual or they're using them in this type of feast. I don't know that. I just know that they had the that they had a need for them within their cultural center. So that's the first type. And that's pretty cool because it tells us that these cultures are, are these sites that are they're Persian only by control, not by ethnicity or they're indigenously something else, Lydian, Lycian, Phrygian. The second thing, though, is really, as soon as you say Athenian pottery in the Persian world, people say, oh, those Sotadian raita, those raita, they're these ceramic pots, drinking cups that have a figure on the base of them, a three-dimensional figure, and then um, the figure is somehow holding a horn, like a conical horn, a drinking horn. And these are kind of inspired by the silver Persian drinking vessels that terminate in bull's heads. We call them rita, R-H-Y-T-O-N, singular, rita, plural. And we know that these rita have been found in places like Susa, the capital, one of the Persian capitals. And there is famously one that was found in the upper, 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 upper Egypt in what is now the Sudan at a site called Meroe. A very well-preserved one of these was found. Athenian, made in Athens 100%, but they are inspired. This is a case where the Athenians are being inspired in the fifth century by accommodated designs. So everyone says, well, yeah, those those are, you know, the attic pottery is being used by Persians. But again, the senior most Persians are not interested in this, except I have hypothesized that these rita found in Susa in Egypt are gifts. They are gifts from Greeks to Persian administrators of some sort. And why? Because one of them that is found at Memphis, it re- it's preserved only in fragments, and it's a, a man leading a camel. <laughs> and on the drinking horn part of it is a red figure decoration of Greeks fighting Persians, and the Greeks are losing. The Greeks are losing. The Persians are winning it. So this tells me this is bespoke. This was commissioned. This was not the Athenian potter, the Athenian potter would not have done this without instructions. 
So in the version of the, the, the battle scene takes its prompt from Amazonomachies, where the Greeks battle the Amazons, Amazons lose. So it takes that motif and changes the figures. So it's the Persians and the Greeks and the Persians are winning on in the, so, so there are two, two styles of consumption. It's the, the, the sites that continue to use the pottery just like they had before and maintaining, probably maintaining cultural identity through the use of it. And then there are these extraordinary gifts. There's also from Cyprus and another place in Turkey, there are Greek vessels with what we call audience scenes, where an administrator, clearly Persian, dressed in Persian Persian garb, is receiving Greeks so that person is sit, seated on a throne holding a staff in Persian garb and then a Greek is approaching. So again, 100% made in Athens with a, a narrative style in of decoration that would never have been used in Athens. So this also signals to me that these are special requests, special commissions bespoke. And they're likely to be gifts where a Greek brings this as a gift because it's a token of their cultural production. And this then reminds us of the Persepolis reliefs in the audience chamber, where the all of the people of the Persian Empire are coming and they're they are they're sculpted into the wall to perpetually be bringing gifts to the great king. And the kinds of gifts they bring are characteristic of their area their their culture so the the thing that they hold is something that is char- a stereotypical characteristic of their culture so in the same way if a greek was going to bring a gift to a persian something they might might bring is a clay pot a decorated clay pot because nobody else no one else is decorating clay pots with figures of humans that is only the athenians at this point in time Wow. You make it sound wonderfully like this is definitely like a a very two-way street, both for the flow of goods, but also for the study, right? I mean, because here you are, a classicist, not in the field of Iranian studies, and you're still tracking what happens and what Mm -hmm. like items, right, are brought in into Persia. So it sounds very much like someone on the Persian side could probably pick up and, and sort of meet you halfway. It sounds like there's a a wonderful avenue there for for further study. Just looking the other way. Yeah, and the the person who has done this a lot is Meg Miller. Meg Miller was able to show that there are plain, undecorated, just black pots made in Athens that are em, that are emulating Persian shapes. So the Athenian potters are aware of these metal shapes, but they make them in clay in Athens in their own vernacular. But the the book Athens and Persia is about how the Athenian potters adopt some of these. And then some other things like their characters sometimes hold parasols. Uh, Some of the figures, red figure, they hold parasols. And she suggests, for example, that that's an influence from... Persia, where the great king was followed by umbrella holders to keep the sun off of him. I'm going to ask a very maybe dumb sounding question, but you know what? It's going to mirror what you thought was originally your dumb research question, which is, well, we see all this Greek stuff coming into Persia. Why would they want it? Maybe they wouldn't. So my dumb question then is is going the other way. Mm -hmm. Do we have any Persian inspired art or motifs that comes into Greece and also 
did they want that? Yeah, well, this is a this is a topic. And are you going to interview Margaret Cool Root? I'm going to try. Okay, you got to ask her about the Parthenon because she has an article in which she says the Parthenon frieze is a Greek version of those Apadana reliefs at Persepolis, the audience chamber reliefs. So she thinks that the Greeks are appropriating it in that cultural superior way where you take the cultural property of somebody else and you consciously co-opt it in order to say you are better than those people. So she has a very interesting article, controversial article about this. And she's at this conference that the Port of Oud conference, she talked about it again in the way that sounds like she's working on something even newer. I think the original article was in the 90s, 1990s. So it's worth if you if you do make sure she talks about the the Parthenon in the Parthenon freeze. But but yeah, so in Meg Miller's argument is similar. And the the idea is cultural appropriation that the Greeks win and by incorporating Persian styles, it's a way of saying we're better than you. This is ours now. And we're putting our own spin on it. And it and we don't we don't know, but there there are some suggestions that that could be the right way to think about it. So it's a very different uh, the the meaning of the incorporation is is quite different. Hmm. Typical for Greece, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. At that time in the in the fifth century, that's this is the they were quite high on themselves after this victory. And they were afraid that the Persians might come back for round three. So there was, you know, they had to sort of psychologically put themselves in a position where they were in control and prepared. And part of that meant, you know, reassuring themselves that they were better than. Was it just the Athenian? I mean, luckily, since since you do focus on ancient Athens, I mean, we do, right, have this perception of ancient Athens, especially in the fifth century, as being the best, the the best of the best in Greece. And this is where all of the culture, the best culture comes from and is produced and exports and, and all the, those things. But just from looking at history, you know, at the, the Athenians, yes, were kind of like the big boogeymen to the, the Persians at, at that time. And rightly, the Persians sort of burned Athens to the ground and they weren't very happy or appreciative of this. But later on, we do know that Persia funded the Spartans and helped them and the Peloponnesian War became this big war of attrition and, and Persia's sort of fingerprints are all over. So I, I'm, I would be curious to see if Persian motifs and arts sort of made its way into other places outside of Athens and maybe they were a little less enthusiastic to sort of co-opt and, and change things because they, do, they don't have this horrible history with Athens, this direct confrontation, and they, they didn't go in and burn Sparta to the ground, you know? Right. Or like, well, Eretria was sacked in 490. It was sacked in 490. But they don't do this. They, they're, they're, but they're not, they're not producing in the same way. But, but you are absolutely right. It's a really fraught geopolitical time. It's in, if we think 
today is complicated. It's, it was complicated back then too, with the fluidity and suddenly the we're asking, as you said, we're asking Persia for money. And so it is really complicated. And so how does material culture play into this? This is the a great question. And and we can only reconstruct it in a hypothetical way because we we don't know for sure, but we can try to create explanations and that's and I think that's what Meg Miller and Margaret Coolroot are doing coming up with plausible reasons now I don't know about Sparta I don't know whether we can find any evidence that material culture at Sparta is slim it's not as well known or as well published so it's hard to know that so Athens I know Athenocentricism everybody says that but I mean we have so much that is preserved And then, I mean, I'm just going to say from a ceramics point of view, Athens was unparalleled. (laughs) Nobody was doing anything comparable to what it was doing in the fifth century. So I think I have a right to be Athenocentric on the pottery side of things. (laughs) Just full disclosure. I don't think anyone was going to expect a different answer from you because then if you were like, somehow there's a place that's better than Athens, I think the first question you'd get is, then why are you studying Athens if you don't think it's the best? So we can forgive you for this one. Don't worry. It's totally fine. And yes, it, uh, it's it's quite unfortunate, though, that we don't have a lot of material evidence left from, from Sparta. I mean, and, and it is sort of unfair that most of the written sources we have are written not by the Spartans themselves. It's from biased Athenian sources. So who right. knows what was there or, or what they had. But I just think it would be a, a fascinating topic of study that once you have a city-state essentially asking for Persia's money, like any ancient culture, I'm just going to assume that you're going to want more than just we'll fund you. You're, you're going to want to sort of have some sort of dialogue or exchange or, or something tangible. So... I don't know. It's a, it's a topic that lends so well to other mediums as well. I personally take a great interest in coins because coins like ceramics travel all all around and they have pictures on them and you can study how they change. So it's a wonderful topic that it could spiral in so many different wonderful ways. So many tentacles, lots of tentacles. Exactly. So one question I do want to ask is... As someone who specializes in ceramics, and especially from Athens, we have a lot of media adaptations and things that show Greek life and artifacts and other things. But do any really do a good job at showing pottery? One, and I ask this because we need more media that depicts a faithful version of ancient Persia because I'm so tired of referring referencing 300 because that's terrible but like if you were to see pottery make its way into something set in the world of Persia you know would we see stuff typical of what we might see in movies about Greece oh well so this goes back to as usual I've kind of overstated how important certain things are. But in fact, at Gordion, the the imported Greek pottery is only 2%, 2% of the entire assemblage. So keeping that in mind, if we were to want to really accurately depict the incorporation of these imported pots, they're probably just one or two pieces out of a set. Like 
an individual did not own a whole set of the Greek pots. Instead, we can imagine it sort of adorned the table in a some sort of meaningful way. So you would have to feature the import along with a much larger assemblage, a group of a set of less very boring or very, very boring things like little gray bowls with no features. That was the reality. So against that reality, the, the Athenian stuff really stood out because it was figured, it was orange, it was decorated. So exciting. But you were talking about um, modern renditions of these things. And I'm I'm going to go to Assassin's Creed. Specifically, I was astonished at the pottery as depicted in there. It was so wrong. <laughs> like it was right, but it was wrong. So they had some shapes, like the one that kept showing up as as you wander around the Agra, one that kept showing up was called a lebes gamakos, which is a shape that is specific to the wedding. And so it would not have been for sale <laughs> just randomly. You know, you would go to the wedding shop, just like you go to a bridal shop to buy a buy a bridal dress, you a wedding dress. You don't go to, you know, Nordstrom's and expect to find a bridal dress on the first floor so you know they got it so close that that's a that is an accurate shape but it was not <laughs> contextually not right and then they they decorated them with like meanders not with figures only a few of them had figures or, or suggestions of figures which was i thought that was a an opportunity they missed in assassin's creed like many other things. <laughs> it's hard when you have big budget things and you need something you can easily sort of replicate in many things. Right. But that they chose to replicate a really special shape, not like a water jar. <laughs> so I would have gone for the water jar. <laughs> Media. I mean, I swear. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Assassin's Creed. And, and for those unfamiliar, it is a big video game it's part of a larger series, but there was a game set in ancient Greece during the Peloponnesian War. And so what we are talking about is sort of the recreation of Athens and the, the things that we are likely to see in it. And one thing that I, I remember that they also got right in astonishing detail was a store Poikile in the Agora. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. Totally random. And in fact, it was so right that that they there is a of course of course there it was called the store of Poikile because it was painted and what that meant is it had panel paintings the paintings on wood that were installed in like in a gallery like we would imagine in a gallery and those do not survive wood does not survive but we have a second century AD tour guide <laughs> called Pausanias who describes them so he describes, and the, the characters must have been labeled, which was something that vase painters did too. They put names above the figures. This is part of the cartoonish element of it. And so he describes what he's seeing, and he's so accurate that modern scholars have been able to recreate what he must have seen. And Assassin's Creed used one of these scholars, used this modern scholar's reconstruction in his which he did for his dissertation <laughs> so that's how deep they went for that but then they and we're off topic we're not talking about the persians right now but they then they they showed the parthenon pediments as being bronze where did they get that nobody everyone knows they were marble the elgin marbles 
I mean, you know what? I'm glad you still brought it up because one, <laughs> I just wanted to bring attention to the fact that we are capable of recreating ancient art. And if they can do it for Greece, yeah, they can do it for ancient Persia. You just need someone to take the time. One. And two, I don't know if you're aware because I believe you haven't played the game. You've only seen footage of it. There is a sort of sequence. It's like extra material, but it brings in a Persian storyline. And what you have are Persian characters and you have like flashback scenes set in Persia. And you see, I don't want to spoil it for anyone who who would like to see this or play it. But when you see like everything from the Persian sort of costuming to the ships and everything, you see artistic decorative elements on it. And from a game that sort of is doing ancient Greece, I sort of look at that and say, well, I don't know if that's really Persian that looks sort of like Greek but like you changed two things and made it look a bit foreign but it'd be interesting and I would love to get your opinion at a different time on what you think about the recreations of the the sort of Persian looking artistic elements but that's why I brought that up. Assassin's Creed's Odyssey is the one we're talking about. I didn't know that was in there. I'd be curious too to look at it. So yeah just for anyone who's curious it is a game about ancient Greece not Persia, sadly, but if you are interested, there's bonus content and it does show Persians and have has a Persian storyline. And, and that is why I believe it is relevant to this conversation because they do show it. Um, and also, I just I wanted to go there because I love talking about the game. But anyway, we I could go on with you for, for much longer because there's so many topics of interest that I would love to get into, but we would both be like a hundred before we got through it. So I will contain myself. Interested in learning more about the wonders of ancient Persia? Visit the UCLA Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran. The Gazetteer digitally preserves famous locations, world heritage sites, and lesser known areas from all time periods of ancient Iranian history. You can explore using the interactive map or visit the encyclopedic catalog for updates to the ever-growing list of archaeological sites. Visit www.arangazetteer.ucla.edu and learn more about what the Archaeological Gazetteer of Iran has to offer. There are two questions that I would like to leave with both our audience and you as well. And, And the first one is, in your opinion, what is the greatest legacy left to us from ancient Persia? Ooh, excellent question. Well, I'm going to answer this one and pretend that I am a citizen of Athens. I am a citizen of Athens. And the greatest gift of the Persians or what has influenced where we are today is the fact that the Persians lost the Persian Wars. And I know that sounds crazy, but if the Greeks had lost against Persia, you and I would not be here today. So in terms of the legacies, the legacy of the Persians, from my perspective, one of the greatest legacies is the fact that they lost and that history took the course that it did, especially for the Athenians. The fact that the Persians lost was a validation of this wacky form of government they had just created 20 years ago, this idea of democracy, the idea that everyone, should, everyone with an asterisk, all men should have a right to vote on political things. That was crazy. But the victory over the Persians validated that. And that's what caused democracy to continue. And if if the Persians had won, democracy would just be a blip. 
it would never have been something that continued. So that's sort of a backwards way of answering your question. <laughs> but that is a really, if, if not for the Persians, we would not be here today. Yeah, I, you know, I love that answer, because I think I was actually, to be honest, I was kind of expecting you were going to pick something and say, look at how great the Persians are. And this is what they left us. But you know, I think it does take someone outside of the field of Iranian studies proper to also realize that as wonderful as it is that we have things that they brought from being in power for such a long period and, and they did contribute wonderful things to what we have now. I think it is very important to remember that even their losses also have positive benefits on the world more broadly. So, and, and, you know, it does take someone outside the field. So I'm very happy to have that answer. It's different. I like it. Yeah, the Persians were a catalyst. They were a catalyst for a path of history that leads to us today. That's what I mean. Yeah, through both victory and loss. So that's incredible. That is an incredible answer. Very different. And I'm very happy you said that. And the second question I have for you is, what do you think would be the best legacy that we ourselves can leave for future students of Iranian studies? Or, and I'll expand it because you're not in Iranian studies proper, for people who would like to study some facet of Persia, but don't necessarily have to be in the field? Oh, that's a good question. And I think I go back to Beth's recent book about the administration of Achaemenid in Anatolia, and that the this idea that they could rule over so many people, a very, very diverse empire. I mean, they had people from Egypt to Afghanistan and everywhere in between, and that they were able to maintain this empire by allowing people to pursue their traditional cultural interest instead of imposing upon them. So I know it wasn't all unicorns and rainbows. I know that. But this was a very ingenious way of maintaining a very diverse empire. And I think this is a, something that we can reflect on and say that when you allow people to pursue their happiness, that's in, embedded in our constitution, the pursuit of happiness. When you allow people to pursue their happiness, you can all live together in a way. And you have to have some sort of level of administration, but it allows people to live well together. And I think that's that's a useful thing to remember. Maybe not implemented in exactly the same way. I mean, I'm, as I said, not all unicorns and rainbows, but it was pretty foresightful. It was really, they had good foresight to use that method instead of coming in and saying, you shall all do as we say, you shall worship our God. That's not what they did. It's pretty cool. I also love that answer. It is really cool because I do love that idea of tolerance and being able to allow people because they sort of recognize that eventually it'll all kind of come together in a big picture. You just can't see it. You just have to let people go off and do their things. And I love how that mimics modern scholarship, which is if we all went into a classics department and they said, you have to study these things and you can't study anything else, or can you imagine a modern field that wouldn't let you study cross-cultural interaction where they're like, you only can do pottery in Athens in the fifth century and the person who studies either Anatolia or Persia will have to study this and then you'll somehow meet at a weird section, but there's no crossover. You know, that would be, that would be terrible. Yeah, that's a good analogy. You know, just part of the joy of studying ancient studies is that you can kind of branch out of, of your region or area and say, 
does this go somewhere else? Because if it does, this is pretty cool. So I love that answer for us, for, for all the, the future <laughs> scholars who I hope will then be allowed to follow their joy, follow their passion. Right, right. Pursuit of happiness. <laughs> Great happiness <laughs> equals studying the ancient world for me and you and yes. a lot of other people. <laughs> so indeed, I did kind of lie. There is one last question I will ask you, and that is where can people find you if they would like to find more of your scholarly work or other musings, books, etc.? I'm on academia.edu, and you can also find more information about me from the University of Cincinnati Classics webpage. The faculty site has my information, how to contact me, and on what I'm up to now, this year, and so on. I'd love to hear from people. We are um, a great graduate program because, as you said, we have under one umbrella, we have texts of philology, ancient history, and archaeology. And we do everything from prehistoric Greece to late Roman, all here under one roof. So if you're looking for a graduate program, think about us. It's a nice, um, well-rounded experience for graduate school. Wonderful. Well, I'm hopeful that people will reach out to you and ask you all kinds of lovely art questions, because as we've seen throughout today's conversation, there there's so much that art touches on and is influenced by. So right. I want to thank you once again for joining me on the podcast. This has been so fun and good luck with all your research. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you very much. And it's very nice to see you. And this is fabulous. Legacies of Ancient Persia is a Port of Oud podcast production, hosted and edited by Lexi Henning, with select episodes co-hosted by Marissa Stevens. Cover art provided by Hadley Leesman and original music by Brent Arhart. Established in 2017 as the premier research center for the study of ancient Iran, the mission of the Port of Oud Institute for the Study of the Iranian World is to engage in transformative research on all aspects of Iranian antiquity, including its reception in the medieval and modern periods, by expanding on the traditional domains of old Iranian studies and promoting cross-cultural and interdisciplinary scholarship. Thanks for listening to our show. It's available to stream on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on social media at Portavood Institute and at Portavood UCLA. Or visit our website, portavood.ucla.edu. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review us. For podcast inquiries or questions about the Portavood Institute, please email us at portavoodpodcastproduction at gmail.com. We'll see you next time as we continue our deep dive into the legacies of ancient Persia.